Good morning. Welcome to chapel. Hope you guys enjoyed the snow this weekend. Yes, yes, a little bit. No school off, but we've had enough school off for snow and ice and other things. So I hope you got to make a few snowballs and enjoyed that. Um, It's um, just a reminder, tomorrow is the day of prayer, a day that we set aside each semester. Um, I know many of you will be doing things with your halls, but just a couple notes. Uh, At 7 o'clock in the morning, there's a sunrise service at Rock City that you're all invited to. It's a wonderful time to be together, um, sing and worship and pray together. And then from 10 to 12 in Mills First Lobby, you're all invited um, for a time of all-campus prayer. Um, It's my pleasure this morning to introduce uh, Dr. Jay Green uh, for another of our academic lectures, faculty lecture series. Um, This is Dr. Green's 15th year at Covenant, um, and it has just been a joy for me to work alongside Dr. Green. He was one of the early folks who welcomed me to Covenant um, and has been gracious over the years. I've enjoyed working with him on the faculty lecture series, on the academic lecture series, Um, And he is going to give you another installment in that today. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, It's really good to be with you. Um, Have you started to notice how awesome birthdays have become since we all started celebrating them on Facebook? (laughs) Seriously. Uh, There's nothing like getting up on the morning of your birthday, logging onto Facebook, and reading a lengthy scroll of well-wishers who thought of you on your special day. It's fabulous. Happy birthday. Hope you have a great day. You're awesome. The annual birthday greeting barrage may be the single greatest reason to have Facebook and, pro- and probably the thing I miss most since I abandoned Facebook. Um, after years of wondering if anyone was going to remember it's my birthday or trying ever so subtly to drop hints weeks or days before it's my birthday. By the way, it's December 4th. <laughs> now... All of these friends get reminders to tell them, hey, it's Jay's birthday. Wish him a happy birthday. It's awesome. A couple of years ago, journalist David Plotz became curious about this little Facebook birthday ritual. He was skeptical of these birthday messages and thought something wasn't quite right. Although getting several dozen little notes on your birthday feels pretty good, Plotz was dubious about the sincerity of it all. The same way all of us should be dubious about the way words like friend and like are used in the land of Facebook, right? All of these people, were all these people sincerely thinking about him on his birthday? So Plotz decided to hatch an ingenious little experiment His real birthday is January 31st. What would happen, he wondered, if he reset his Facebook birthday to July 11th? And then after July 11th, what if he reset it again for July 25th? And then after that, again on July 28th? 
By the way, there are no rules on Facebook against changing or repeatedly commemorating your own birthday. So, let me try it. What do you suppose happened? Well, you probably guessed it. Dozens of friends obediently chimed in on July 11th with birthday wishes, 119 in all. And then on July 25th, he received 105 greetings. 45 of them repeat birthday wishers. <laughs> and then on July 28th, Plots received 71 jubilant birthday notices. 16 poor souls had wished, wished Plots a happy birthday on three different dates within a span of 17 days. Right? The great Facebook birthday experiment probably tells us many things. But among them, it illustrates a firm and enduring truth. We humans are notoriously bad rememberers. Our capacity to remember is fragile and weak, making it very hard to maintain anything like a firm grip on the ways our experiences in the present are linked to what's happened in the past. And we've outsourced our already feeble memories to electronic technologies to which we obediently and slavishly rely on to do work once accomplished only by our brains. Can't remember those song lyrics? Google them. Can't recall who won last year's Super Bowl? Wikipedia. What time does Amber's party start? Search your email inbox. Can't recollect the name of China's president? Ask Siri. Afraid you might forget your best friend's birthday? Facebook has you covered. I make my living teaching history and was trained in the methods of critical historical study. History, as many here have heard me argue, is little more than an enterprise of systematic, organized remembering. Historians are engaged in the practice of preserving, selecting, categorizing, analyzing, and writing about the past so that features of it that we deem significant won't fade into oblivion. It's an important kind of work, because as I've noted, in case you've forgotten, we humans are notoriously bad rememberers. And this isn't, by, uh, this isn't sort of any new digital age problem. The writer of Ecclesiastes summed it up nicely. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not remember, be remembered by those who follow. We're bad rememberers, plain and simple, always have been, always will be. Not long ago, I discovered, embedded somewhere else in the book of Ecclesiastes, an exhilarating yet heartbreaking little illustration of our woeful condition. This little story I submit to you is perhaps the shortest, most distressing tale in all of Scripture. Ecclesiastes 9 14 and 15. It's all of two verses in length, a mere four sentences. But I swear to you, it's got it all. Intrigue, an epic clash of wills, good versus evil, the triumph of resilience and quiet nobility over avarice, greed, and naked power, 
If you read between the lines, you might even find a little romance. I'm convinced that these four brief sentences have the making of an epic blockbuster movie that could easily demand a multi-million dollar budget and a cast of thousands. I'm picturing like a, I don't know, a Russell Crowe or a Liam Neeson as our villain. And I've taken the liberty of casting Ryan Gosling as our hero. <laughs> Here's the story. There once was a small city with only a few people in it. And a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now, there lived in that city a man, poor but wise, and he saved that city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. The story has a seemingly glorious happy ending. This dude saved the city with his wisdom. Do you not know how hard that is? I don't have any idea. Uh, however, the money line for me is that hopelessly tragic last sentence, which should make our collective hearts ache. But nobody remembered that poor man. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. My all-time favorite poet, Billy Collins, sums up our sorry state in his poem, Forgetfulness, which is especially poignant to those of us who are starting to feel old. The name of the author is the first to go, followed obediently by the title, the plot, the heartbreaking conclusion, the entire novel, which suddenly becomes one you have never read, never even heard of. Which suddenly becomes one you've never heard of. Uh, as if by one by one, the memories you used to harbor decided to retire to the southern hemisphere of the brain, to a little fishing village where there are no phones. Long ago, you kissed the names of the nine muses goodbye and watched the quadratic equation pack its bag. And even now, you memorize the order of the, as you memorize the order of the planets, something else is slipping away. A state flower, perhaps. The address of an uncle. The capital of Paraguay. Whatever it is that you are struggling to remember, it is not poised on the tip of your tongue, not even lurking in some obscure corner of your spleen. It is floated away down a dark mythological river whose name begins with an L, as far as you recall well on your way to oblivion where you will join those who have even forgotten how to swim and how to ride a bicycle. No wonder you rise in the middle of the night to look up the dates of a famous battle in a book on war. No wonder the moon in the window seems to have drifted out of a love poem that you used to know by heart. Our status as bad rememberers is, as it turns out, a fairly big problem. Because memory is one of the basic elements that makes uh, the human condition, that makes us in fact human. To be human is to remember. To have a human identity, one that remains intact moment to moment, day to day, year to year, requires a remarkable God-given capacity to recollect who we are and to unite our sense of ourselves 
as we were yesterday to our sense of ourselves today. Part of the process of waking up each morning involves reconnecting to the self we were before we went to bed the night before. We probably don't give it much thought. It happens almost instantaneously, or for some of us, after a fairly strong cup of black coffee. But each time we do, we're engaged in the most elemental form of remembrance. Imagine the terror and confusion that would ensue if you awoke one morning to find yourself suddenly without the capacity for this kind of basic remembering. Everything else necessary for the day would come unhinged. You'd become entirely paralyzed. So memory is more than a way to retrieve information from the past. Memory is what holds our identities together. Many of us have watched loved ones descend into the darkness of Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia. We tend to think in immediate ways of these as diseases of forgetting, and they are. But the real tragedy that ultimately consumes those who suffer from such diseases is the severing of the self from those relationships, places, and communities that have always otherwise given their lives grounding, meaning, and direction. Of course, remembering isn't something we do only as individuals. We also remember collectively. We have shared social memories with communities to which we belong. It's interesting that as communities, we invoke memories of things that we ourselves weren't present to witness, allowing us to speak of such events in the first person plural. As Americans, we say, we defeated the British in our war of independence. We were the first on the moon. We were attacked by terrorists on September 11th, 2001. As a Cleveland Indians fan, I'm proud to say that we won the World Series in 1948. <laughs> and as a statement of faith, I affirm that we will do it again, but probably not this year. As a Christian believer, when we gather at the Lord's table, supping together with believers of every time and place, receiving the bread and the wine, as Christ commanded, we do so in remembrance of him. And just as we forget as individuals, we also too easily develop amnesia as communities. And such cultural forgetting can weaken or destroy our shared identities as groups of people, just as surely as Alzheimer's can send a man or a woman into an eternal oblivion. This is why I teach history. Historical learning exists, at least in part, to aid communities in the critical task of remembering, recovering a sense of identity by keeping both the triumphant and the tragic memories of such communities alive and vibrant. So memory is a vital concern for all of us. And as I think I have mentioned, we are notoriously bad rememberers. But this isn't even the most troubling of, of news. I would argue that the poor quality of our memories is only matched by our desperate, even obsessive desire to be remembered. Pastor Tim Keller suggests that our greatest human fear is not that we will become hated or scorned, but that we will, we will be forgotten altogether. Although we legitimately worry about the status of our reputations, 
We carry an even greater anxiety about whether or not others even take note of our existence. Think back to those Facebook birthday greetings. Someone remembered me. I matter. I'm validated. There's great power in someone remembering and speaking your name. We long to be known, to be recognized, to be deemed significant enough to be remembered. I'm convinced that much of of our striving and struggling in this life stems from a deep-seated longing to do something magnificent enough to make us worthy of remembrance after we're dead. God created us for eternity and as beings that will live forever. And because of this, we carry within us an indescribable hunger to have our names spoken after we're dead and gone. Now we know in our hearts that the only true answer to this hunger, this longing to be remembered, is to have our bodies and our minds surrendered to the God who knows us by name, who has promised to remember us long after we've forgotten or even have the capacity to remember even ourselves. It's why we should take enormous comfort from the words that begin the eighth chapter of Genesis. After 150 days of torrential rain, producing floods that covered all habitable land, wiping out every living thing on the face of the earth, in Genesis chapter 7, four words of comfort and hope begin chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. In the final analysis, these are the only words that will matter to us. Our deep longing to be remembered finds its true and final answer in our faithful God, who has written our names on the palms of his hands. But in the meantime, for reasons known only to him, God has chosen to use a very human strategy to preserve our relationships with one another and our relationship to him. The glue that binds these relationships together is our very fragile practices of remembrance. While undoubtedly guided by the Holy Spirit, the survival of our faith depends upon the aptitude of God's people to remember and to faithfully extend the stories of God's grace from one generation to the next. In other words, God continues to sustain us by imploring us to exercise our very crumbly memories. You might say that God has deposited this very precious treasure in jars made of clay. God continues to call us to remember, even as he knows that we are lousy rememberers. Our longing to be remembered is fulfilled, at least in the short term, by entrusting our names and all that our names signify to the memories of those we leave behind. There's some debate among biblical scholars about whether or not the idea of heaven or a literal life after death experience can be found in the teachings of the Old Testament. It's possible that the Christian doctrine of heaven as we know it didn't emerge until the New Testament era, or more probably the time between the Testaments. Whether or not this is the case, the Hebrew scriptures seem to describe the capacity of humans to live beyond the grave as the continuation of their memory in the hearts and minds of their children. 
their children's children, and all their descendants. In the same way, the Hebrew Bible equates eternal damnation with having the memory of one's name eternally wiped away as if it never existed in the first place. One of the great curses to befall any person according to an ancient Israelite worldview was to have one's name blotted out from under heaven. Another profound curse was childlessness. Not only because it deprived a man and woman from the joy of raising a family, but because it denied them a chance at immortality. King David's tragic son Absalom erected a pillar in the king's valley as a monument to himself, an admittedly pathetic substitute for immortality. For in his words, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. In 1942, amid the Second World War, when most of the Holocaust's victims had not yet been murdered, a Jewish resident of Palestine, Mordecai Shenhavi, proposed the first ever memorial to the victims of Nazi violence. He named it Yad Vashem. And it is today the largest Holocaust memorial in the world, spanning 45 acres at the foot of Mount Herzl in Jerusalem. The name Yad Vashem is taken from Isaiah 56.5, where God promises a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And Yahweh here promises this memorial to, of all people, eunuchs. Men with no chance of bearing children to carry on their names. Like eunuchs in danger of having their names forever wiped away, the victims of the Holocaust might now in this new memorial receive in the words of the prophet Yad Vashem, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Scripture bears witness to the tensions between our very fragile memories and our desperate, desperate desire to be remembered. And this is why God implores us not to take the situation lying down. The Bible radiates with urgent calls to remember. God repeatedly implores his people Israel to remember who they are, from where they've come, from what calamities they've been delivered and by whose power they are sustained. He does this because such memories provide abiding foundations of hope. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Why remember? For what God has done yesterday, he promises to do for you and your children today and forevermore. Remember, remember, remember. We're really no different. Like ancient Israel, we too are called to be keepers of memory. It's our task in this life to carry on the collective memories that have shaped the communities to which we belong. By helping one another claim these collective memories as our own, we implant ourselves more fully within the stories that root us and give our lives meaning. Being keepers of memory within a culture that worships at the altars of individualism and technological innovation has its challenges. While these ideals have surely spawned creativity in the marketplace and in science, I fear that they've likewise resulted in something like social amnesia. 
living in a culture that, as the Doobie Brothers put it, can't stop thinking about tomorrow. We tie ourselves tightly to an ethic of forgetting. Tear down that neighborhood so we can build a new superhighway. Throw out that method of teaching math because we've developed a new and a better one. Abandon those old ways of doing church because we've discovered modern, more effective methods. Push out that old guy with his old ideas so we can make room for somebody younger with fresh insights and creative energy. Such attitudes have encouraged us to liberate ourselves from what sociologist Robert Bella aptly calls communities of memory. Those communities that provide our lives with context, a sense of rootedness, and a genuine responsibility for the world beyond our immediate needs and limited experiences. By implanting in us a deeper and longer vision of our place in the world, Bella argues communities of memory not only tie us to the past, but they turn us toward the future as communities of hope. Friends, we need to root ourselves more fully in such communities of memory. We need to recognize how the inheritance of such communities enrich us and give our lives grounding. And we need to embrace the notion that stories from the past don't merely belong to our parents and our elders, but that these stories, both the good ones and the bad, are indeed our stories. And that we need to tell such stories with vigor and with joy. One evening, years ago, my wife Beth Ann and I were in different parts of the house. I don't know what we were doing, watching TV, reading. Uh, our kids were in bed asleep. Our oldest, Lucy, was about three years old at the time. Suddenly, our cat became very agitated outside of her door. We observed the cat's increasing agitation and began to realize that something was happening inside that room. When we opened the door, we discovered that a bird had flown down the chimney, out of the fireplace, and into her room, and was flying round and round in kind of a panicked state. Being the calm problem solver that I am, I first picked up still sleeping Lucy and moved her to another room, and then, with the help of my wife, managed to coax the bird out of the room and eventually out of the house. Very exciting stuff. Uh, we then put still sleeping Lucy back to bed. She missed the whole thing. The next day, we told her what had happened, and over the next several years, it became her very favorite story to tell. Even though she'd slept through the entire incident, she, it was her story. It was her memory. It was part of her identity, uh, and it became very much a part of who she was. This is sort of the way collective memory works. It's certainly how it's functioned within our family. Stories of how Beth Ann and I met and fell in love. Stories of how of our, each of our children's births. Stories of aunts, uncles, grandmas, and grandpas. Stories of wrestling with God to discover his calling for our lives. Stories of Ohio farms, long trips to Kansas, and of piano lessons. Stories of making huge mistakes failing exams, surviving cancer, and losing loved ones. 
But the memories we keep among our children aren't limited to family stories. Our family has a bigger context. We tell stories of our neighborhood, St. Elmo, and of our church, St. Elmo Presbyterian. Of the United States of America and its cultures. Of Western civilization and of the development of scientific inquiry. Stories of the larger church, of its triumphs and its failures. We tell stories of God's loving work within our world, his extension of his image to us. His calling on us to subdue and fill the earth of our rebellion against him and of his redemption of us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And as we recall these larger memories to our children, we hope, we pray, that they will claim these memories as their own. God has entrusted this task to each of us as keepers of memory. But God understands who he's dealing with. He knows that we are notoriously bad rememberers. Uh, Did you ever tie a piece of string on your finger to try to help you remember something you needed to know or needed to recall? Well, God also urges his people to find physical, tangible ways to remember what he deems important, to weave them into the rituals of our lives, to tie them as symbols on our hands, to bind them to our foreheads, to write them on our door frames. This is why, in addition to merely telling stories, Scripture gives accounts of erecting physical emblems of commemoration. Remember when Samuel set up a memorial stone, a so-called Ebenezer, to remind God's people of his provision and his help. We name buildings after important people and affix placards as tributes to them on their walls. We enshrine people of our stories in stained glass as a way to recall and add greater permanence to the power and the meaning of their lives. We also set aside days of remembrance for others, like those that recall Martin Luther or Martin Luther King Jr., as markers in time as well as in space. All of us old people in your lives, your teachers, your parents, your coaches, and your pastors, we're kind of relying on you. Speaking of jars of clay, we're counting on you to hear, to hold on to, and to carry forth the wisdom, skills, values, and failures, maybe especially our failures, that we've accumulated in our lives. We're counting on you to carry on the memories of our name. In order to do so, you need to make our stories your own. You need to begin making a habit of telling these stories to one another. So that you'll be ready when the time comes to plant them deep into the minds and the hearts of those that will follow you. This is the provision God has given us. Not only for the persistence of our faith, generation to generation. But it's also one of the ways we live after we die. No pressure. But you guys are at least partially responsible for our immortality. My longing to be remembered is satisfied, at least in part, when my children and my students continue to tell the gospel story of my life when I'm no longer here to do it myself. 
Answering the awesome demands of memory keeping is an enormously weighty task that requires sober-minded commitment to live your lives with grown-up seriousness, with genuine Christian maturity, and with a keen awareness that God has entrusted the persistence of his church into your very, very shaky hands. As the Apostle Paul states, God's power is made perfect in weakness. You are broken vessels with feeble minds, and you, like all Christians before you, are notoriously bad rememberers. And you, like all Christians before you, have an insatiable hunger to be remembered. May we today entrust ourselves and our capacity to fulfill this solemn task to the God who remembers, who has promised to us a memorial and a name better than sons or daughters, an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Let's pray. God of grace, have mercy on us, feeble-minded, notoriously bad rememberers. Impress on us the good imperative of keeping the memories of your people generation to generation. May we ever tell the gospel story with eager joy. And as we do, dear God, may we entrust our lives ever more fully to you, who in eternity has written our names on the palms of your hands. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.